woman who reveres the awesomeness of God, I want to extend a very happy Mother's Day to all here who are moms, especially to my mom, who's not here but may hear this message. And as I said, she didn't let me become sentimental on the way home from Florida because at the airport I was a little sentimental, and I said to her, you're the greatest mom ever. And she said, yeah, well, you're a son of a gun. So, but I do want to say, I still, I double that mom. You're still the best mom ever. But I want to thank the Lord for all the moms here. And that includes grandmoms, great-grandmoms, great-great-grandmoms, stepmoms, New moms, veteran moms, empty nest moms, moms with full nests, ladies with mother's hearts, and all of those here in the spiritual womb of whom Christ is being formed. As Galatians 4.19 says, speaking of Galatians, let's turn there this morning. Galatians chapter 3, and also taking up on a theme that we started last week, Second Peter chapter 2, this is the Petrine connection to Paul, connection of Peter and Paul. We don't need to rob Peter to pay Paul, nor do we need to rob Paul to pay Peter. They have the same gospel, even though they had commissions to proclaim it initially to two different categories of people. Peter to the circumcision, Paul to the pagans. But their ministries overlapped, as we'll see. And I thank Dollar Bill for praying today. Pastor Brown, you might be losing a job, so. I didn't want him to do the offering because, you know, dollar offering, you know. And as you saw in his prayer, he's worth any two of 50 cent. That's getting old, I know, but there's probably three people here that haven't heard that yet, so there you have it. I want to mention before we get started today, too, that I think this is admirable when people in our church do this and are motivated to do this, to witness for Christ our very own, Tetelestai's own, Steve Dzvonik is going to be opening an invitation to all, and that includes all of you if you want to be supportive, at the Eaton Park in the Waterworks Mall tomorrow night, May 15th at 6 o'clock. His subject is persevering through life's adversities and afflictions through the spiritual life in Jesus Christ. And all are welcome. And once again, I appreciate the courage of men and women who step out and just have the initiative and the determination to become a witness for Christ in this way. So keep that in mind. Some of you may want to be there to support that burgeoning ministry. In 1 Peter 1.1, in connection with 2 Peter 3.15, that encompasses pretty much both epistles of Paul, The writer 
writes to Galatia, among other places, in 1 Peter 1.1. He writes to Galatia, among other places. And as Paul wrote to Galatia, much of what we're going to look at today, 2 Peter, is a reminder. Peter said it's his job to keep on reminding you of these things. And these things are what we'll discuss. There are many things that I want to discuss today, particularly what we call the promises of God, especially a single promise that applies to everyone here, that applies to everyone at all times in all of human history, the whole conglomerate of humankind. So Peter's witness and that of James and John who accompanied him on the Mount of Transfiguration in Second Peter 1, 16 to 21 went into a description of the prophets. He said, no one, no prophecy is of any private interpretation. It's not because you thought of something and you invented something, so you said it. The prophets were carried along, says Peter, by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. And this correlates with what Peter preached in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19 and through 21, in which he said, all of the prophets, those carried along by the Holy Spirit without exception, spoke of one thing mainly, and it's the apocatastasis pantone, as we have learned, the restoration of all things from Peter's mouth and from the prophets, God spoke about this restoration of all things. Paul the Apostle also spoke of it. In fact, in the very opening of his gospel in Ephesians, where he wasn't dealing with any controversies, he wasn't dealing with any evil teachers coming in to corrupt his audience. He was just purely preaching the gospel. He said that God's intention from eternity before time is to sum up everything in Christ Jesus. And that correlates with all what the prophets have been saying and what Peter says. And he said the transfiguration gives all the more certainty to the nature of that restoration because Jesus Christ's Radical transformation in front of them was a preview of his coming in which all of creation will receive the same transfiguration. And that's going to be proven as we go forward. The transfiguration of Jesus Christ, significant in that it was a preview of his coming, Peter said, but it it was also a preview of the transformation of all things, all humankind in all of its times. I want to show you, and this is going to take some heavy lifting, so I ask for your prayers in co-laboring with me in this. One of the things that I want to develop is how all time was compressed at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ so that all humanity in one single mass was before God at the cross And that's when Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. God commended his love and demonstrated his love in that while we were yet enemies, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet filled with sin, controlled by the flesh, Christ died. And this is the magnificent love of God demonstrated in Christ. All of time and all of human history, all of humanity is compressed, therefore, before the cross and at the cross and at the resurrection. For if one died for all, Paul said in one of the most ecstatic moments in his ministry, if one died for all, then all have died. All died. 
And if all died when he died, then we are expecting all to be made alive in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22. The way God recapitulates everything in his son is to allow all creation to share the existence of his son. And that we are the beginning of that. The church is the initial inauguration of this universal new creation. We are already crucified with Christ and know it. We are nevertheless risen with him, as the scripture teaches also. So Peter's witness and that of James and John, who saw Jesus on the holy mountain and heard the voice of the Father, so that it wasn't just visual but auditory. And this connected with the voice of the prophets, or God speaking uniformly through the prophets about the universal restoration of all of creation, shows a connection. There's a unified witness in the New Testament, a unified witness of Peter, Paul, James, John, as we're seeing from study of Revelation. And there are many scholars that I've studied recently who suggest that there was a distinction or a difference or an argument between these New Testament witnesses. I'm quite the contrary, saying to you that there is an amazingly unified witness among all of the gospel preachers and all of the writers of the New Testament. Now, please recall, at the end of Revelation, we saw that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was pronounced upon all, pantone. So that shows that John's revelation has a witness also and a communication of a universal salvation. Recall that the letters First and Second Peter went, among other places, to Galatia. And so I think we can detect a connotation, a correlation between Peter's epistles and Paul's epistles, and particularly a connection with Galatians. That's our subject. That's where we're hunkering down. That's where we're wrestling and engaging with the texts on Wednesdays and Thursdays around here. That's where the main heavy lifting goes on. But in Galatians chapter 3, we have a remarkable connection here. And I want you to see this passage, especially with regard to promises. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15. And now that I'm sure that you're all there, we'll turn to Second Peter just first. Stay there. Stay there. It's like, I'm, I'm doing this moment by moment. I'm winging it a little bit here today. I have notes, but I still wing it. I go by what comes and as it comes. But first of all, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter... And he introduces himself as a doulos, just like Paul does in Romans 1.1, a slave of our Lord Jesus Christ. I translate that imperial slave because it's specifically a genuine servant. He's introducing himself not just as a servant, a diakonos, but as a genuine servant, a doulos, a willing servant to do the will of a king. And the king is Jesus Christ, the king of kings. That's why we know that the word righteousness of God doesn't speak of his justice or of a character of his characteristic of his essence called righteousness, but it rather speaks of the act of God in Christ, the king, to deliver his people and to deliver his domain from danger and from peril. And as the scripture says in Galatians 1.4, Christ died for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil age in order to rescue us from this present evil age that finds a correlation with second peter 1 4 
as we're going to see in a moment here. Simon Peter, an imperial slave and emissary, apostolos or apostolos, often was a nautical term in that time in which the apostolos was an admiral of a fleet. It refers to high authority, but it also refers to the servanthood of a communicator. Simon Peter, an imperial slave and emissary of Jesus Christ. Again, this is almost like Paul's introduction in Romans 1.1. To those who have received, hit this a little bit last week, received means to obtain, to have been given, to have been given by lot or by election, a faith of equal value to ours. He's writing not only to churches there, but I think to our own time. This is taken on the level of our own time. If we have faith, it's been given to us. Faith has been given to us. In Philippians 1.29, Paul said the same thing. It has not only been given to us the privilege of believing, but also of suffering for Christ's sake. And therefore, persecution only enhances the evidence that the persecuted belong to God. So the 215 million Christians under persecution in this world today, we should never take for granted that we are free from that, generally speaking, so far that they are suffering and their suffering only enhances and presents evidence of their identity as the people of God. For as Galatians will say in Galatians chapter 4, as it was then in the day when Ishmael, born of the flesh, persecuted Isaac, born of the spirit, even so it is today. Those who are born and carried along by the flesh persecute those who are born and carried along by the spirit. Always remember the persecuted Christians. They are us as we are them. They are connected. They are members of our body, our flesh, our bones. They are us. So I know that God will keep you in and me in memory of them. Simon Peter, an imperial slave, an emissary of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of equal value to ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may be a single reference to Jesus Christ being our God and our Savior, as we have it in Titus chapter 2, and verse 13. What I wanted you to note last week and repeat again this week, please note that we have a faith that came from God's righteousness. We don't have a righteousness that came from our faith. We have a faith that came from God's righteousness, his act of deliverance in Christ, not a righteousness that came from our faith. And so that's what Peter understands Paul to be saying. In Second Peter, we have to understand that Peter is explaining Paul's gospel in many regards, and there's a lot of connections, and I've seen this connection recently, and therefore pray to God that I can articulate some of the correlations here. Simon Peter, an imperial slave and emissary of Jesus, to those that have received like precious faith or faith of equal value. We've explained that that faith has equal value to that of the apostles because it isn't a little faith to one and a lot of faith to another, although there is that special gift of faith in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is a supernatural assurance and a certainty of assurance that some may not have. But the faith there is of equal value because it's not our faith. It's the faith of Jesus Christ. It's our participation in his fidelity. It's faith that is the faith of Jesus Christ. That's why it's of equal value. 
The faith that you have is a participation in Jesus Christ's faithfulness. It's God's gifted bequeathal to you, his, his gifted bequest to you. Therefore, Paul has nothing over you in terms of faith. Paul serves as an example of salvation, and Paul wasn't saved the way that many people teach justification by faith. He was saved by an apocalypse of Jesus Christ, and that's how we are saved, by an encounter with Jesus Christ through the gospel in which we receive faith, equal, precious faith. Again, I want you to emphasize in your mind that this faith of equal value is received by the righteousness of our God and Savior. It's not righteousness received by an act of faith on our part. Grace and peace, he says, just as Paul says in almost all of his epistles, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the transcendent knowledge. Epignosis is the word here used. Paul uses it in Ephesians 1.17, Philippians 1.9, Colossians 1.10, Philemon 1.6, 1 Timothy 2.4. Through or in the transcendent knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, as through his divine power, and his divine power must be defined this way. It is the power of omnipotent love which effects salvation. The power of almighty love which effects salvation and which erases wrath. It erases a sinful past and it erases a fearful future. This power of God. And it's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. And that's what Romans 1.16 says. So we have again in 2 Peter 1, 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the transcendent knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, as through his divine power, that's the power of omnipotent love which effects salvation. He has given to us everything that pertains to life and worship through the knowledge of him who called you. He has given us given to us everything that pertains to life and worship through the knowledge of him who called you. Called you means called you into existence because he's the one who calls things into existence that didn't exist before. What did you have to do with that? Being called into existence, not existing before. If you not existing before were called into existence by God, who and what were you as a non-existent thing to do anything to call forth God's calling? You say, repeat that. I can't. I don't know what I just said. But, well, you can verify it on tape and see what was he talking about. But the point here is that he called you. Galatians chapter 1, Paul said, I marvel that you so, are so soon defecting, going absent without leave defecting, deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. Called you there means called you into existence. This goes back to Romans 4.17. The author of our salvation is the God who calls things into existence that did not exist and who raises the dead. That's two things God does. That's two things we don't do and we can't do. So, This makes sense as it starts to gel with Paul's epistles. As through his divine power, 
He has given to us everything. I'm going to make you understand this, I hope, because as the scripture says, and I put this kind of to the test in the Gospel of John, God loved the world so much that he gave his son. God loved his son so much that he gave him the world. And God loved us so much in Christ that he gave us the world in him. And he did not spare his son, so he freely gives us all things. Our inheritance is the inheritance of a new heavens and a new earth. According to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17, according to Paul in in Galatians 6.15, according to Isaiah in 65, 17 and following, according to Peter in 2 Peter 3, 13 and 14, according to John in Revelation 21, 5 and 6, look, I'm making everything new, says the enthroned God. Backing up slightly, as through his divine power, he has given to us everything that pertains to life and worship through the knowledge of him who called you, that is, into existence as a new eschatological creation. By, and I I supply this in the ellipsis, by the exertion of, by the exertion of his own glory and virtue, by the exertion of God's own glory and virtue, he called you and me into existence out of non-existence. Once we were not a people, now we are the people of God, because once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. 1 Peter 2, 10 and 11. Receiving mercy means to be saved. For according to his mercy, he saves us. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, through the regeneration or the bath of regeneration and the renewal of the spirit, which he poured out plentifully on us. And by grace, you are justified, says Titus 3, 5 through 7. And of course, this is the mercy that God intends to show to all. His intention has become a determination. His determination has no obstacles. The cross removed any obstacle to God's determination to bring salvation to all things and all humankind. Now, I've shown this this week. Resurrection does mean a judgment, a judgment on evildoers. But the judgment on evildoers that occurs in the resurrection is a transformation of the evildoer by grace. And probably followed by the recognition on the part of that person of the parties that he has oppressed, offended, or done wrong to. And that's going to come up in the resurrection. That's why Jesus said the resurrection is to life to those that did good, that is, participated in Christ's fidelity in time. And it's a judgment to those that did evil, but the judgment is transformative at the resurrection. Resurrection itself is the judgment, the final judgment on the flesh and the transformation even of the most malevolent evildoers. And that's because God's determination that salvific is not, finds no obstacles. The obstacles were removed of the cross. That's what I want to show you in a moment, or I have been showing on Wednesdays and Thursday nights. Now, what we do is people always react and say, what about so-and-so? Look how evil he was. They want to accentuate the heinousness of a sin over the love that paid for the sin. That's the arrogance of mankind. There's almost an immediate flip reaction to the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ pointing to some individual in history who was particularly malevolent and evil. And that's because the person who makes that objection 
accentuates and emphasizes the heinousness of an evil action on the part of someone over the omnipotent love of God demonstrated in Christ Jesus for the sins of the world. And that's a big problem. People don't see the breadth of salvation because they don't perceive the depth of the cross. People don't see the breadth, the width, the length of salvation because they don't appreciate the depth of the cross. My whole ministry now for nearly 39 years has been being taken deeper and deeper into an appreciation of the depth of the cross of Christ so that I wouldn't dare to glory in anything but it. And that includes not glorying in the human evil that men do. I don't glory in the human evil that men do. We eschew it. We hate it. But we glory in the love that God demonstrated in his son, Jesus Christ. That's the way things really are. That's the real world. People say, get with the real world. I'm explaining to you what the real world is. It's a world about to be redeemed that has already been reconciled. If you don't line up to that reality, you can call yourself a realist if you want, but you ain't real, and your world isn't real, and you're living in a fantasy land. So, so much for preaching. Still got a slow heartbeat. Not mad. Just fearless. That's all. Now look at this. By these. By what? By his glory and virtue that he exerted on our behalf. Hi, Trina. See you back there. Speaking of glory and virtue, there's Trina. Now, Hurricane Trina, as I like to call her. Now, in 2 Peter 1.4, by these, that's his own exertion of glory and virtue, his own divine power by which he called us into existence, who were nothing before, and by which he raised us from the dead, who were spiritually dead. By these, he has given us precious and magnificent promises so that through them, and that means through their fulfillment, so that through them, promises, certain promises God made, and incidentally, a promise by definition made by God is an unconditional pledge. A promise given by God is an unconditional pledge. Most promises given by men are called jokes, which is why I always kind of laughed off the whole idea of join the promise keepers. I already have. I'm in union with Christ, the promise keeper. Now, not, not, not against that organization. I don't know if it's still even floating, but there's lots of things that flow. In any case, verse 4, by these he has given us precious and magnificent promises so that through them, that's the fulfillment of these promises by God in Christ, we would become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped, we escape because he delivers. Having escaped, we escape because he delivers. You know what Peter's doing here, or the author of this second Peter, you know what he's doing? He's going back to Galatians 1.4, in which we are delivered from this present evil age with its corruptive influence, mainly called the flesh, which Peter here calls the lust that's in the world, or the corruption that's in the world through lust or the impulsive desire of the flesh, capital flesh, F-L-E-S-H, because it's a supernatural power, not our lower nature. 
So, again, 1-4. By these he has given us, emphasize this in your mind, if you will, precious and magnificent promises or invaluable and great promises so that through them, that is through their fulfillment by God in Christ, we would become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, Jesus Christ became like us so that we could become like him through conformity to his image. Jesus Christ became like us Philippians 2, 7, Romans 8, 2, and 3, so that we could become like him. For when we see him, we shall be like him. For we will see him as he is. And that means we will be as he is in resurrection when we see him. You want to see him before that? Ask him if you want, but I don't. I want to wait till that time so I can have him say, blessed are you, who believed without seeing. Here's some extraordinary blessings for you. So again, verse 4, emphasizing this, because by these, his exertion of his own glory and virtue, by his own divine power, which is omnipotent love, he has given us precious and magnificent promises so that through them we would become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through loss. Now, Let's speak of these great and invaluable promises. Now look at Galatians. My job, engage the text. Get into the raw guts of the material called the Greek language and the use of that language in the Greek text and engage it. Because if I'm asking the question through this series, and this is the 58th time I've tried to answer it, if I'm asking the question, does Paul's, do all Paul's epistles together, and the only time all Paul's epistles together are mentioned in a single phrase is in 2 Peter 3.15 and 16. Do all Paul's epistles present to the eye of the heart or the eyes of the heart an apocalyptic vision of Jesus Christ in his all-saving significance? And if so, does that vision constitute that which the people of God need so as not to perish in Proverbs 29:18 we could we could say as people ask scholars do i'm i'm impressed with scholars to a point then i look over at exegetes and impressed with them for the point so i mix the two exegesis and theology and you get something you get somewhere but a lot of them see a difference between paul and other witnesses in the scripture i do not so speaking of the great and precious promises, now you can have Galatians three fifteen, and I've translated this as I did the second Peter passage from the Greek text. So speaking of these great and precious promises, he is referring no doubt, no doubt, no doubt referring to the promise, the initial promise that God made to Abraham. Specifically, many times he did Genesis 12, 3, 12, 7, 13, 15, and, but specifically in Genesis 22, 18, God made a promise to Abraham and to his seed. And his seed is singular, not plural. Not to many, but one singular seed, and the seed is Christ. So Paul, we've established this, I think, and I think the congregation is gripping this a little uh, better. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, when God preached the gospel to Abraham in advance, 
That is before the cross of Christ. When God preached the gospel to Abraham in advance, he proclaimed it as an unconditional promise with universal implications. I never said it quite that way before, so let me say it again. When the gospel was preached and advanced to Abraham, it was preached in the form of an unconditional promise with universal implications. Why? Because he simply said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and your seed. And in your seed, that's Christ, all the nations will be blessed. All the nations, including Israel, as we're going to find out in Galatians, as Israel is seen as distinct from the nations, but often seen as among the nations, as here, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. What's the blessing? Participation in the divine nature through the Holy Spirit, sharing the same existence as Jesus Christ, who died for all and rose as all, who became a curse for us, that the blessing of Abraham might come without obstacle to the Gentiles, to the pagans, as it comes also to the Jews in Galatians 4, 3 to 5. So it was spoken unconditionally. He did not say, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed if they behave. It does not say, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed if they believe. It simply says, without condition, in your seed, all the nations of the earth, all the nations will be blessed. The blessing is the blessing of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, whom God sends into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, and who allows us to participate in Christ's own existence and share his own faithfulness. So we know and understand that if we're going to fill in anything in that unconditional promise, it's going to be this. In your seed and by his fidelity, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's all of humankind as a single monolith, all contained in one declaration, an unconditional promise with universal implications. Some of you might argue and are arguing that doesn't mean everybody. Well, I guess God's going to leave a few out just as examples to send to hell. I don't know. I'm just being facetious. But in Galatians chapter 3, siblings, Paul says. Now, that's kind of like a, an effete term, and people don't like that term. But he says brothers, and he means brothers and sisters, so I just call it siblings. I'm about to use an illustration from human affairs, that is, from everyday affairs in human life. No one nullifies, and this is in the time in which it was written, but to a certain extent it applies to our own time. No one nullifies or adds a codicil. A codicil is an amendment or an emendation. No one adds a codicil to a last will and testament that has been confirmed confirmed or validated. Now, you can add a codicil to a last will and testament if the last will and testament hasn't been ratified. You can amend it slightly. But Paul's saying no codicil added to a last will and testament that's been ratified or validated can invalidate that 
last will and testament. So, and this is how he applies it. No one nullifies or adds a codicil to a last will and testament that has been confirmed. Now, when Jesus presented the first communion service, what did he say? This is my blood by which the New Testament is ratified. And so, no one nullifies or adds a codicil to a last will and testament that has been confirmed. A last will and testament is a kind of a covenant, not a contract. It just declares that an inheritance goes to somebody unconditionally by the will of the testator. No codicil added afterwards can nullify that. And how does Paul apply that regular occurrence in human legal affairs to his gospel? He says this, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Why does he say promises plural like Peter says promises plural? Because he's referring to this passage quite likely. Why promises plural? Simply because the same promise in your seed, all the nations will be blessed, was repeated by God several times in the scripture. So it's repeated. Promises is the promise repeated through the scripture, through the, especially Genesis from 12 to 22, all the way up to really to Genesis 24, 7, where it was repeated. Now the promises are spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He, which speaks to God or the scripture, because the scripture foreseeing the blessing of the Gentiles preached to Abraham. It says that the scripture personified preached the gospel to Abraham in Galatians 3, 8. Now the promises are spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, this is key in Paul's exegetical move, this is a, an ingenious move. Not genius, but ingenious. The new saying is now, that's genius. Now you say, that's a genius, but you say, that's ingenious. I hate to keep reminding you, but there is this thing called the English language. I like to hold on to it so I know what I'm saying and know what I'm hearing. But this was an ingenious exegetical move by Paul. He says he does not say and to seeds. This is both in the Hebrew text and the Greek Septuagint text. He does not say and to seeds, plural, as if referring to many. On the contrary, he says and to your seed, singular. Here's the power of one. Power of one, Kevin. You know that power. The power of one. To your seed, referring to one, and then he says this. Here's the heart of Paul's gospel right here, who is Christ. To one seed, who is Christ. The unconditional promise can't be nullified by the addition of something 430 years later called the legal part of Torah, the law. The law with its power to curse and enslave. Because the law was co-opted or commandeered by a thing called sin. And therefore, it had to be wrested away from sin. And it was by Christ on the cross. So now we may fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. And so fulfilling that law in Galatians 6.2. So this promise and to your seed, which is one which applies also to Romans 5, 15 to 8 to 19, through the grace of the one man, Christ Jesus, justifying life comes to everybody. Through the grace of the one man, Christ Jesus, 
justifying life comes to everybody. The gist of Romans 5, 15 to 18. And everybody is everybody without exception. So it's the one man. Peter said the same thing in a sermon in Acts 15 against those in Acts 15, 1 who said Gentiles have to be circumcised to be saved, which means to be part of true Israel. Peter stood up and among other things, he said, we believe, meaning him and the apostles, that we Jews will be justified by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ even as they will be, the Gentiles. We believe that we will be justified by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is his gracious act of obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, followed by God's response of exalting him through resurrection and elevating him to enthronement at his right hand. And so this promise or these promises include the promise of the inheritance of the land to your seed. But the land isn't just a piece of earthly geography. Romans 4.13 says that the inheritance of the land is ultimately the inheritance of the whole cosmos, the whole world, the new heavens and the new earth. According to things that Paul wrote in his epistles, we wait for this new heavens and new earth where righteousness or God's act of deliverance is universally at home. It's universalized in the glory of God. I'll be explaining and ironing out that concept. But this includes the promise of the inheritance of the land or the cosmos or the inheritance of all things, says Romans 8.32. Abraham was asked to offer his son Isaac in sacrifice. God spared Isaac. God the father, analogous to Abraham, offered his only son as a sacrifice. God did not spare his son. So God who did not spare his only son, how shall he not with him freely give us a few good things? No, freely give us all things. God loved the world so much that he gave his son to the world. God loved his son so much that he gave the world to his son. God loves us so much in Christ that he gives us not only his son, but all things in him, which is the inheritance of the cosmos, the universe. That's a pretty good inheritance. And again, the word here is toe. I'm going to let you go pretty soon. Don't worry. I know you've got reservations. I have none. Get it? No reservation. Oh, never mind. To spermati. We get the word sperm from this, of course. Seed, spermati. To spermati, which means one. In the Hebrew text, it's zerah, singular, one seed, one seed. But in that one seed, there are an innumerable company of children, which means all of humanity is in that one seed. Please remember this. The one Christ who 
In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, the scripture says, as in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive. That Christ in whom all will be made alive is the same Christ who is the seed in whom all the nations will be blessed. You see a correlation there. In fact, are you beginning to see the vision of an enthroned Christ in his all-saving significance? A vision without which the churches today are perishing. They're trying to be Christians in the energy of the Adamic flesh. They're trying to reconfigure the crucified Adam into an acceptable person, a deserving person, a nice person, a moral person. When the scripture says, put off that old man altogether and put on the new man, which is Christ in you, Christ living in you. Put on the new man means put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no reservations for the flesh. Not for lunch, but for the flesh. So, we have this word singular, Genesis 13, 15, Genesis 12, 3. When did God call Abraham? While he was an idolater in the land called Ur of the Chaldees. When did God call Saul of Tarsus? When he was murdering Christians and on his way to kill more of them in Acts 9, 1. When did God justify Paul? He justifies one kind of person, ungodly, ungodly people, Romans 4, 5. He died for the ungodly in Romans 5, 6. So when did Abraham get called into existence? He was called into existence by God while he was still an idolater in the era of the Chaldees. If Paul's an example of salvation, when did he go through all the things that the Lutheran Conception has to put us through. We've got to go through the law and realize how anxious and anxiety-ridden and depressed we are. We can't fulfill the law. So because we can't fulfill the law, we're depressed and anxious and fearful of hell. And the fears of hell grip a hold of us. And then somebody comes with the gospel and says, if you only believe, you can get out of that. That's not the gospel. That's not how Paul got saved. That's not how Abraham got called. And we could call it the call of Paul rather than the conversion of Paul. Because he was called into existence as a new man. So then, in closing, as we begin to wind down here, seed is singular. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then God added something here, very interesting. Because he said, you obeyed the voice, or obeyed my voice, is added in Genesis 22, 18. How do we configure this? Maybe this is too much to ask for this morning, but... He said, because you obeyed my voice then after that. This is remarkable because God is presenting an analogy here to Abraham and Christ. Abraham heard the voice of God and said, that said, offer your son to me. And he obeyed. And that was a picture of God the Father speaking to his son, offer yourself as a sacrifice and the son was obedient throughout to the father's will the father's intention father what do you intend i intend to save the world then i'll be obedient to your intention how will that be brought about by you offering yourself as a sacrifice for sin so that you can take away the sin of the world then i'll do it i'll do it he was obedient says the scripture to the extent of death by crucifixion. So Abraham's son was spared, but Abraham's obedience illustrated an obedience that would come in the future. 
an obedience to God by Jesus Christ. And that obedience is something that's applied to you as a gift. The obedience of Christ is yours. He obeyed as all of us. He became a curse for all of us because cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. And he hung upon the tree as every man. And he was resurrected from the dead as every person. This is an all-inclusive gospel. And I stand on it, and I stand with it, and I will proclaim it. So Abraham is analogous to God the Father who offers his son. Isaac is analogous to Christ as the offered. But Isaac was spared, and Christ was not spared, so that with him being offered for sins, nothing now inhibits or prohibits or stands in the way of our inheritance of all things, freely given by God through Jesus Christ. For God loved the world. Listen, I'll say this for the third time today, and maybe it'll strike home. God loved the world so much that he gave it his son. And he, God loved the son, his son so much that he gave him the world. That's all the world of mankind. All flesh, Jesus said, all flesh, that's all human beings, have been given to me, entrusted to me, given to me by my father, says John 17, one and following, two and following. So, beyond that, I've said that in the Gospel of John. I repeated it in the book of Revelation. God loved the world so much he gave it his son. God loved the son so much he gave him the world. But beyond that, God loves us so much in his son that he gives us all things in him. Paul exclaims something about this in one of his, I call them Corinthian moments. In Corinth, In his writing to Corinth, he had a few moments in which this gospel just burst forth, like 2 Corinthians 5.14. Now the love of Christ constrains me, Paul said, because I've come to this determination that one died for all, and therefore all died. And so Paul went through an epistemological radical transformation of how he viewed humankind from that moment on. The love of Christ constrained him. If one died for all, then all died. For God was in Christ, he said. He tries to explain it. First, he exclaims. Now he tries to explain what he exclaims. He says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And even as he says in Galatians 3.13, Christ became a curse for us, that the blessing of Abraham might flow to us without obstacle. He says, Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might be the evidence of God's act of deliverance or the righteousness of God in him. This is God's doing, who has made Christ to be for us wisdom, sanctification, and redemption, and righteousness or deliverance or salvation. And why wouldn't Christ be deliverance? The name Jesus means salvation, Yahweh, in the act of salvation. So in closing, Paul makes one more statement. This hit me this morning in my study as I was revamping some of these things. He says, in 1 Corinthians 3.21, he said, No one should boast in men. That is, who's your pastor? Who's my pastor? Who's your theologian? Who's my apostle? Etc. He says, for all things are yours. He said to the Corinthians, all things are yours. 
Then he says, just in case you didn't know, whether Paul, Paul is ours. That's why I'm, re- I'm teaching the series called Better Call Paul. Paul is yours. He belongs to you. Or Apollos or Cephas. That's Peter. Kepha. Peter. He belongs to us. And then he says, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. It's all yours. It belongs to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. How did he say it in Colossians? You died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we shall appear with him in glory. We shall see him as he is. We will be like him as he is. So Galatians 3, and I'll just read this for tracks to run on for Wednesday and Thursday. He says, and I'll just hit you real fast with my translation, and we will close in prayer. Galatians 3.17, Paul says, this is what I'm saying. That is, by using a human illustration. This is what I'm saying. The law or the legal part of Torah, we could say, the forensic voice of the law, which came 430 years later. After what? After the unconditional promise of Abraham with its universal implications, the law came 430 years later, does not nullify a covenant or an unconditional covenant of promise so as to cancel the promise. Verse 18, for if the inheritance, that's the blessing including the inheritance of the world and of all things because of a shared existence with Christ, the seed, he says, for if the inheritance is from the law, ek namu, it is no longer from the promise, ek empangalia, or from the promise. But God, he says, but God, he says, freely Read that as unconditionally. God freely, that is unconditionally, granted it as an act of his grace in the perfect middle indicative of the verb kerizomai. God granted it to Abraham by a promise. So if you want to liken the gospel to something, it's the unconditional promise of God that in his seed, Abraham's seed, Christ, all the nations will be blessed. So Paul writes Romans and he says what? He says, I was called to bring about the obedience of faithfulness in all the nations. I was called to bring out the only response to the fidelity of Christ being the belief of the nations. And I've done this, Paul says, from Illyricum all the way to where I'm headed, Spain. And we'll explain that coming up. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Thank you for all the moms who are celebrating today and for all of us who are celebrating our moms. We thank you for this, and we're grateful, Father, that today, speaking of Mother's Day, Christ has been a little more formed in this community of believers, this small community of Christians, this inaugural new creation. Christ is being formed, and this is my prayer, Father, for Tetelestai Phalanx, that we would have Christ formed in us and that we would be conformed more and more into his image, an image of love for all mankind, a constraining love. For I ask this in Christ's name. Thank